Um, if you can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, this is where uh, I'd like to centre uh, our thoughts on uh, this evening. Um, but just by way of introduction, uh, you may have noticed if you've been uh, listening to this series over the last few weeks and months, well, particularly in the last few weeks, um, I've kind of quite deliberately uh, not in, gone into great detail into the text. And um, I think I've said, I'm not quite sure if that's just cowardly or whether that's wise, um, but I've been wanting to get through the whole of this book and uh, it'd be very easy to get um, distracted in details. And so I've, I've tried to um, do more of a sort of bird's eye view so that we can get a general feeling of the book. And you might notice that quote uh, in your service sheet from Charles Spurgeon. There's a quote which James shared with me recently. And uh, Spurgeon once said, A man says to me, can you explain the seven trumpets of Revelation? And Spurgeon said, no, but I can blow one in your ear and warn you to escape from the wrath to come. And uh, that's kind of really the philosophy I've kind of had uh, over the last few weeks. And interestingly, uh, I think it would be true to say that that is, in fact, the ultimate meaning behind the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and the seven seals. Uh, that is the ultimate message that we need to prepare for the wrath to come. And that's been the focus. And uh, a few weeks ago, uh, when we were looking at chapters 15 and 16, uh, we were looking at why God's wrath is poured out on this world. Uh, last time, last week, uh, in chapter 17 and 18, we looked at who is God's wrath poured out on, and we looked at Babylon, uh, what the passage, uh, who the passage described as the great whore, um, the world who rejects Christ and runs off after other gods, uh, whose wrath God is poured out upon. Uh, but this week, uh, I guess in some ways, I would like to sort of just round all them, all those chapters up and describe a little bit more how God's wrath is poured out. And uh, this will perhaps be a little bit more like what you were expecting a sermon series on the book of Revelation to sound like, um, because we are going to look a little bit into the future. Uh, which the book of Revelation does speak a little bit about. Uh, but I warn you again, I'm going to stay quite uh, high level, quite um, at a bird's eye view. I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty details. And even then, uh, you may disagree with some things that I have to say. Um, but just by way of structure, um, how I'm going to structure it this evening is, first of all, we're going to look at, very briefly, the time before the tribulation. Uh, then we're going to look at the time during the tribulation, and then we're going to look at the time after the tribulation, at least a little bit, before ending our thoughts on Christ, who is the central character in this chapter 19. And so we won't really, to be honest, talk much about chapter 19 until the end, but hopefully when we get to that point, uh, what we say in chapter 19 will make more sense. Uh, so that's where we're going this evening. So let's start before the tribulation. And if you've cast your mind back, if you were here, when we um, quite early on in this series looked at the seven seals 
which Christ opens. Uh, you remember how Christ is given a scroll by his father, and this scroll represents God's kingdom on earth, and it is sealed with seven seals. And one by one, Christ opens the seals because only he is worthy. And when he opens the first four seals, um, we learn that false Christs um, come into the world. Um, there are pestilences, there are wars, there are rumours of wars and plagues um, come into this world. And the New Testament makes very clear that that is basically the order of the day for this world before the time of great tribulation at the end. Jesus in his uh, sermon on the Mount of Olives made this very clear that uh, before he comes uh, there will be many wars and rumours of wars in diverse places. There will be pestilences or viruses if you like. Uh, there will be plagues. There will be all these disasters and there will be false Christs, false beliefs, false prophets in this world. And this is precisely what we see, isn't it, in this world. Um, perhaps it's never been more clearly uh, brought home to us than it has in the last couple of years, uh, at least the issue of pestilence. Um, and this is the way Christ tells us this world is going to be before the end. But we've also learned that these plagues, these uh, disasters which come upon the earth, are signs of God's judgment, but they're also warnings from God. Uh, every, every virus which strikes, every war that happens, every natural disaster that we see should be a warning to each of us that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. As he said it would happen, it is happening. And so in that way, although these are signs of his judgment to come, they are also signs of his grace. And that's what many people forget. Uh, they're so quick to judge God. They're so quick to shake their fist in anger at God that they fail to see the mercy of God in giving us time to repent by giving lesser disasters to warn us that there is a greater disaster coming. And we're very clearly told that those warnings will get louder and louder and louder until the day that Christ comes again. That is the warning before the time of tribulation. But let's move on now to the next section about this time of great tribulation, which we learned about several weeks ago. And again, uh, the New Testament is very clear, and in fact, the Old Testament also is very clear that before the end, there will be a time of great tribulation. Uh, before that, there is tribulation. There are false Christs. There are pestilences. There are wars and rumors of wars. Tribulation in general but before the end, there'll be a time of great tribulation. And we've learned in this book of the rise of one who is called the Antichrist, uh, who is the precise opposite of Christ himself. Um, and in the book of Revelation, he's called the Beast. That is the main title of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. He's described as the Beast. He's um, presented as the servant of the devil. And he comes by the devil's working 
not by gods. And there are at least basically three descriptions of this Antichrist. Uh, Three um, main uh, characteristics which describe the beast. Uh, We're told, first of all, that he will be a mighty ruler. He will be a mighty ruler. Uh, And it seems, it's not entirely clear, but it seems that his kingdom may even stretch across the whole world. Uh, A ruler whose kingdom is across all nations and lands. Um, In chapter, um, didn't make a note of it, I think it was chapter 17, um, we're told that ten kings serve him. Now, whether that number is symbolic or whether it's literal is not clear. Um, But at the very least, what it means is many kings will serve this mighty ruler called the Antichrist. Uh, Throughout history, we've seen great generals and leaders, haven't we? Uh, You might point to Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, uh, to Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, uh, the Emperor Nero, even more recently Napoleon, and people like Hitler who wanted to be a mighty ruler and may have succeeded uh, had he not been defeated. And we can see these rulers throughout history, and they are antichrists with a small a, if you like. But the antichrist will be a mighty ruler beyond them all. He will surpass all previous human rulers. But a second characteristic of him is that he will claim to be God. He will claim to be God himself on earth. Um, He will actually cause the whole world to worship him. Uh, That's made very clear in almost every passage in the Bible on this character. He will invite and welcome the worship of men and women in this world. Uh, In chapter uh, 13, we're even introduced to his PR man, uh, who's called the false prophet. And the false prophet is like the, the high priest of the beast's religion. And uh, we're told in chapter 13 that this false prophet builds an idol. He builds a statue, much like Nebuchadnezzar uh, is described to have done in the book of Daniel. And he instructs people to worship it. And that is basically this false prophet's job, to encourage people to worship this mighty ruler who will rule, it seems, most of the globe. And we learned last week that the centre of this worship is in Babylon. At least that's the name it's given symbolically. And it's the opposite of Zion. Uh, Zion, as I've said earlier, is the place where God's people are, the people who love him, the people who love Christ, the people who follow Christ. Um, We saw, didn't we, in chapter 12, uh, sorry, not in chapter 12, in chapter 14, uh, how God's people were on Mount Zion and they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. But they're small number. They're a depleted number. But we see the beast, the whole world, follows after him and they gather, as it were, in Babylon. But we see the final description of this Antichrist. We learn that he will persecute God's people. Uh, He will persecute God's people. So badly, in fact, that Jesus even warns 
that unless God shortened the time, then there'd be no faith left on earth. That's how bad the persecution would get. And again, we see this pattern throughout history. I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar persecuted God's people. You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, You perhaps heard of the um, Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes, who again persecuted the people of God. Incidentally, his name means, Epiphanes, basically means God manifested. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was an antichrist with a little A again. And throughout history, you have men and even women who have persecuted God's people, the Emperor Nero, uh, Hitler himself. You can see how this is a pattern throughout history. Proud rulers who persecute God's people, but the Antichrist will surpass them all, and he will instigate what is described as the Great Tribulation before the final end. So that's the second section. Uh, During the tribulation, we see how this mighty ruler will arise called the Antichrist, and he will um, claim to be God, and he will persecute God's people. But then we come to the third section. Uh, The third section is after the tribulation, or you might say at the end of, at least, the tribulation. I'm not going to get into the details. Um, But at least somewhere towards the end of the tribulation, we discover that things go wrong for the people who worshipped the beast. Uh, We learn that the Antichrist and the kings who serve him will turn on the very people who worshipped them. This is the detail of what we were looking at last week. I didn't look at this in much detail last week, but I'm mentioning it now. But when you read it in its detail, uh, chapter 17 and 18, you discover that although these people worship the beast, although they appear to love the beast, although they think the beast is going to bring them everything they want in life, in fact, he turns round and he destroys them. He's a very fickle leader. And once again, this is a very strong pattern throughout history. I'm sure you can think of examples yourself. People often flock to charismatic, powerful leaders thinking they will give them what they desire. They think this dictator or this ruler will be the answer to all their problems. And they treat that person like a messiah. You might even remember um, when Barack Obama was elected. And people were using that sort of language uh, of him, uh, almost this messianic figure who would unite America and would make everything right again. And this is a habit throughout history. We think some human ruler will be the answer to everything. But history shows us that the love of leaders for their people is fickle. The love of the leaders for their people is not something that can be trusted. Now, I heard this story, and it's a true story, and I warn you ahead of time, it's not a pleasant one. Uh, But on April the 24th, 1997, there was a 21-year-old Indonesian woman called Sui Kamala Dewey. And she asked a 15-year-old rickshaw puller named Andreas to take her to a man named Datuk. 
Uh, now, this was in Indonesia, and Datuk was a sorcerer, I guess some sort of witch doctor, a man of authority in that neighborhood. And the women would come to him, women in particular, would come to this sorcerer, this witch doctor, and they would come to him for spiritual advice. And they often hoped that he would enable them to become more beautiful or to become more wealthy. Uh, They even hoped that perhaps he would cast a spell on their husbands so their husbands would not run after other women. And they sincerely believed that this man, who they called Datuk, would be the answer to these fears and their worries. And so the rickshaw driver took her to this man and received his fare and went back home. But Dewey never came back. Uh, After three days, her body was discovered in a sugarcane field. Now, the rickshaw driver, um, Andreas, he informed the police of the house which he had taken Dewey to because that was the last place they had seen Dewey alive. And they interrogated the man who lived there, who was Jutak, whose real name was Suraji. And under interrogation, he confessed his crime. Uh, This witch doctor, real name Suraji, had lured women to his home with his charisma and with his authority and his promises of health and wealth. And when they arrived, he told them that they had to perform a ritual. Uh, To get what they desired, they would have to go through a ritual. And he would take them out to a sugarcane field, and I warned you it's not a pleasant story. He would instruct them to dig a hole, and he would tell them to get inside the hole, and then he would bury them up to their neck and then strangle them. And he assured them all the while that this was part of the ritual. When he had confessed, the police went to the sugarcane field, and they found 42 bodies in that field. Now, I give you that extreme story because it illustrates how the devil is a cruel master. This is the way the devil works. He lures people in with his promises. He claims to give people the world, and yet he takes everything from them, even their soul. That is the danger of following Christ, of following the devil, of following those who resist Christ. That's why the middle verse of the Bible Uh, I don't know if you've uh, ever uh, heard that fact, what the middle verse of the Bible is. Uh, But the very, very uh, central verse of the Bible, if you do the Mass, is do not put your trust in princes. Do not put your trust in princes. And I can't remember the rest, Anne or someone will be able to tell me afterwards, but trust in the name of the Lord. That is the only place of safety, not in human rulers, not in human kings, but in the Lord, ultimately in Christ. And that story is just a small example of what will happen at the end. When those who went to the beast, who follow after him, who listen to his teachings, suddenly find he betrays them in the end. And that's the huge warning for us. That's the huge warning for us uh, listening this evening. We need to beware the schemes of the devil. We need to beware 
his wiles. We cannot afford to trust this world. But you might wonder, well, where does that leave us? <laughs> um, because does that mean we must become cynics of everything? The world's a dangerous place. We must disbelieve everything. Well, if you do that, you'll discover you won't be able to live. <laughs> um, the reality of life is that we have to trust authority to some extent. We have to trust so often our doctors. Uh, we have to trust the people who built our houses. <laughs> we have to trust the people in our supermarkets. Uh, we have to even trust our government to an extent. Uh, if we don't, we cannot live. The answer is not to become just blindly cynical and not believe anything. The way we save ourselves is clinging more closely to Christ. The way we save ourselves is not getting drawn into the dangers of the world, but by clinging more closely to who Christ is and what he says. That is, in fact, the repeated warning in the book of Revelation, where Christ says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he says, listen to me, listen to me, watch me. Take heed to what I say, and you'll be protected from the lies and the schemes of the devil. The New Testament frequently warns us to be watchful, lest we are deceived. Many people who claim to be believers will be seduced. Many people in the book of Revelation, we're told, are seduced by the lies of this world, and they are led astray by the false promises of the devil. And the way we resist that is by knowing Christ intimately. Uh, you know the best way to recognize a forgery, don't you? Uh, it's not to try and gather as many forgeries as you can and try and memorize every single way a £10 note can be forged or a Monet can be forged or a vase can be forged. You'd never manage it. There's too many ways that forgeries can happen. The best way to recognize a forgery or a fake is to know the truth really, really well. And if you know the truth well, then you will recognize the lie. You will recognize when something is out of line. This is probably, and I wouldn't want to be too dogmatic about this, um, but this is quite likely what the meaning of the mark of the beast is, the 666, which we looked at in previous chapters. Uh, you remember how we've said how the devil, the beast, and the false prophet mimic God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we've seen in this book how seven is, is repeatedly the number of perfection, uh, the number of God, if you like. But the beast, his number is 666. Six. He mimics perfection, but he doesn't make it. He falls short of the reality. He tries, the devil tries to be like God, but he fails. The beast tries to be like Christ, but he fails. The false prophet tries to be like the Holy Spirit, but he falls short. And the way we can spot the fake is by knowing who God is by knowing God's word intimately. That's what the book of Psalms says, isn't it? It says, how will a young man, or a young woman for that matter, or an old man or an old woman, how will they keep their way 
by paying heed to God's words. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, didn't they? Uh, You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And they were serving Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. They weren't mere cynics. They were actually serving in the very core of the king who built an idol and told the people to worship it. They weren't just merely cynical. But the moment he said to them, worship this idol, worship this idol in my image, most likely. When he said, when all the musical instruments play, I want you to bow down. When everyone else bowed down, they stood firm. And why? Because they knew God's words. They knew that God had said, you shall not have any God before me. They had God's word fixed on their foreheads, if you like. They had it written on the palms of their hands. So when the situation came, they were ready and they stood firm. And that's what we need to do. We need to be ready for that moment when the government, or when uh, anyone, for that matter, pushes us to go beyond what God allows in Scripture. One more example from history. You might remember Hitler, and I've used this example before. But you remember he um, instructed the churches in the years before the Second World War, and he told them to make an oath of allegiance to him. And some churches caved. Some churches swore an oath to Hitler, and they bound themselves to a human ruler, which we must never do. But some churches stood firm. Some churches said, no, we will honor you as king, but we will not give you what we can only give to God. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did here. That is what we must do to stand firm. Know Christ and know his word intimately, then we will be protected from error. And it won't be easy. Now, it's very easy to say it right now from a pulpit uh, when we're not under persecution, when we're not under immediate threat at least. But I'm sure it wasn't easy for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Can you imagine it? Uh, when that music plays and everyone around you is bowing down to this statue, how easy would it have been to just try and hide behind a pillar or something, or to maybe just bow down on one knee and just try and hope that nobody saw that you weren't exactly bowing down? You can see the temptation it must have been. And yet they didn't. They stood firm because they knew God and they loved him. And this is where we come to chapter 19. Uh, this is where we come to the importance of chapter 19, and we'll close with this. Because although it might be difficult now, although it might be difficult to stand firm now, it will be far harder for those who are seduced then, when Christ comes back. However difficult we might find this world, however difficult our persecution might be, it is nothing in comparison to what those who reject God will feel on the day of judgment. And that's exactly what is described here in chapter 19, because we're told how Christ, Christ himself, the true Christ, the real Christ, not the antichrist, but Christ in all his glory will break into this world and he will come in all his glory and in all his beauty and all the devil's lies will just fall to pieces before him. And on that day, 
It's not God's people who will be trembling. It's not God's people who will be anxious and afraid. It will be all those who rejected him. And did you notice the description which is given of Christ? And the description of him is the polar opposite of the Antichrist. Uh, We saw earlier how the Antichrist was unfaithful. All these people flock to worship him. And yet in the end, he betrays them and destroys them. He is the opposite of faithful. And yet what does it say of Christ in verse 11? It says, And I saw heaven opened, behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. The Antichrist isn't faithful. He will, in a moment, in the blink of an eye, will reject all those who trust in him. But Christ will never, never forsake those who rely on him. They may go through deep waters. They may even go through the fire. But Christ will always be with them, as, of course, he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you read the story. Christ will never forsake his people, unlike the Antichrist. We learn how the Antichrist is deceitful. He tells lies to get people to follow him. But it says of Christ, he is faithful and true. We may not enjoy the truth that Christ has to say. It might sometimes be painful, but it's always for our good. It's always what is best. We're told that the Antichrist will reign in unrighteousness. He will be unjust. He will be unfair. But what does it say of Christ? It says in verse 11, And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. Christ is the perfect judge. He is a faithful ruler. And in some ways we um, may not like that idea. We don't like the idea of judgment. But deep down... We all long for that, don't we? Deep down, we long for the day when all paedophiles are judged. We long for the day when all murderers are judged. We long for the day when all the evils of this world are put right. We desperately want that day. The fly in the ointment is that we ourselves will have to give an account. And of course, we're on the wrong side of the law ourselves. We ourselves are not innocent. But deep down, we all want justice. The Antichrist won't give that, but Christ will. And did you notice, uh, earlier in the chapters, it said that the Antichrist had ten crowns. Uh, He has ten crowns. He has great authority. But what does it say of Christ? In verse 12, it says, His eyes was a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. On his head were many crowns. You can almost not number them the number of crowns on Christ's head. His authority far supersedes any authority of any merely human leader. And did you notice that although the Antichrist pretends to be God, and in his pride he lifts himself up and tries to get everyone to worship him, what was Christ like when he came to this world the first time? was the exact opposite. Instead of coming to this world and demanding that everyone worshipped him, he said he came as a baby. He came as a baby in a manger. He was born to peasant parents. He lived in Galilee. Um, Galilee is, is probably pretty much the equivalent of Lincolnshire in this country. 
it's, it's not anywhere special. It's not got anything to boast about. He lived in Nazareth, which is probably not much unlike Billinghay. Nobody's heard of it. Nobody cares. But that's where Christ was born. He is the polar opposite of the Antichrist. And far from demanding worship, the Bible says that he actually hid himself so that people would not make him king. Because when Christ came the first time, he did not come to reign. He came to die. He came because of his love for his people. Do you see how Christ beats the Antichrist hollow? That in every single way, every facet of his character shines with a greater glory than any human ruler. Every human ruler is tainted with pride and arrogance and lust for power. And yet Christ left that. He left heaven and he sacrificed it for us so that we could reign with him. That's the repeated theme in this uh, book of Revelation, that he will give us a crown. Those who endure with him, he will make kings and priests before his father. And then we will cast off our crowns and lay them at his feet. In every way, Christ demonstrates himself a far more worthy king than the Antichrist, a far more worthy king than any human leader. And did you notice that stark distinction between what happens to those who trust him now, to those who worship him now, compared to those who trust the world, who trust the Antichrist, who trust this world system? You can see it sandwiched before and after this passage about Christ. Uh, before we're given this description about Christ, it describes God's people. And it gives this beautiful description, which we will look at in more detail in later weeks uh, when we come to chapters 20 and 21. Uh, but I'll just read it for now. Uh, and John writes, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of many thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath he made ready, hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. When Christ comes back, he will welcome all his people, regardless what sufferings they went through in life, regardless what tribulations and turmoil and difficulty they went through, they will enjoy forever the wedding feast of the Lamb, and they will be dressed in white robes of righteousness. Did you notice the description of what will happen to those who don't trust in Christ? And it's a stark one. It's in verse 17. It says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them and received the mark of the beast and then that worshipped his image. 
These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse. Can you see the terrible stark difference? One enjoys the peace and the joy of the wedding feast of the Lamb. The other group are punished for all eternity. If I can put it so, because the verses do, they become the supper. And the question for each of us is, which party would you rather be in? Who would you rather serve? Would you rather serve the human rulers of this world? The rulers of this world who are fickle? The rulers of this world who are deceitful? The rulers of this world who eventually will come to nothing? Or will you serve Christ? Will you serve the one who is faithful and true, who judges righteously? If you do serve him, it may not be an easy life, but it will be a wonderful eternity. That's the choice that we are left with. And really, there is no choice. There is no reason to reject Christ, who loved us enough to die for us. And that's why I've chosen as our final hymn, a hymn which looks back on all that Christ has done for those who will trust in him. It's number 131. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, O sing of my Redeemer, with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. So we'll stand to sing number 131.